Welcome to Iris Equity, the podcast on all things law and technology. I'm Tima. I'm Catherine. I'm Paul. And in this episode, intro to the dark web. So welcome to a new series of Ars Equi. In the next couple of weeks, we want to explore the dark web and all the mysteries it hides. And for this series, we are joined by our friend and colleague, Catherine. Hi. Hello. Hi. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, great to having you. Right. Okay. So let's dive right in, shall we? I'm sure a lot of you have heard about the dark web and heard about it as being the shady place, the shady side of the internet where criminal activity takes place, where drugs and weapons and sometimes even people can be bought and sold. So today we really want to dive into this and talk a little bit more about the legal implications, the technical implications and all of the things that go into accessing the dark web and how law enforcement and um, security agencies deal with the issue that is the dark web. So should we dive in by talking about how the internet is made up of these three different areas and what they all do and how they work together? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you might have heard, there are three layers, which is technically slightly inaccurate, but let's say three aspects of the web. And the first one is the surface web, which basically include anything the standard search engine can find. So something you find by browsing Google. Um, so this part, which is the most common one or the most known one, is actually quite small compared to the deep web, which includes all that information that cannot be found with a standard search engine because it has not been indexed or crawled. So it is technically impossible to estimate accurately its size, mm -hmm. but it's really the widest part of the web. And within the deep web, there is what we call the dark web, which is still something, so all the information, all the sites that are not uh, indexed, but has have also been concealed. So to access it, um, you have to use specific browsers. So these are called privacy enhancing technologies, which anonymize information sent through the internet, and they sort of provide for this additional layer of security. And the most commonly used one is the Onion Router Tor, um, which is quite well known for different reasons. And um, yeah, so I think this is pretty much the basics about the different layers of the internet. Yeah, so essentially we are using the deep web uh, every day because it's actually everything that is behind a paywall or after login, like my cloud, my Dropbox. Yes, is emails, everything. So anything that you can access, but it's not available through Google. So yeah. Right, and then the dark web can only be accessed through these uh, anonymity browsers such as Tor. So, um, Paul, do you want to tell us a little bit from the technical perspective what this is or how this works? Yeah, so the idea is to anonymize the traffic. So no single point knows all of the details of the transmission of the data. How this works on a technical level is that the data goes to a so-called entry node, where it goes into the network of, of Tor. Then it goes to a relay node, which only knows the entry node and knows the next step, the exit node, but doesn't know the original um, person who, who made the request and doesn't know the destination. Then it goes to the exit node where it exits the Tor network uh, and it goes on to its destination. So at no point does a single server have all the information of the origin and the destination. Okay, and I think what's also really interesting is the original intention around 
tour, right, mm. was essentially to protect individuals in the intelligence community or whistleblowers or citizens or journalists from very um, suppressive regimes and allow them to be able to communicate anonymously online. Yeah, so there's a lot of different things you can do with this anonymity. Mm. So you can use it for good, for example, for uh, whistleblowing, so anonymously passing on information, uh, for example, about government abuse or bypassing censorship. Uh, but you obviously can also use it for bad stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And also, apart from whistleblowers, also daily users prefer to use privacy enhancing technologies um, as a sort of, yeah, as obviously as it goes, um, having stronger privacy online and uh, blocking any form of tracking and so on. So there is clearly attention there. And I find this very fascinating. Yeah, I mean, the paradox that these anonymous browsers create is, of course, you do get the benefits of privacy and being able to do what you need to do, especially if you come from a country where, you know, there's censorship or where freedom of expression is not really something that is allowed. But on the other hand, you're able to create these dodgy corners of the Internet where you create marketplaces that are thriving with criminal activity. Yeah, so it's the appropriate environment for uh, both very legitimate um, reasons and also common known um, journal websites such as the BBC and I think the New York, New York Times, they also have uh, a site on the dark web to enable um, these whistleblowers or anyone as such to communicate freely. But it also gives the opportunity to uh, sell illicit products or to try to, for example, sell um, stolen personal data and all these other aspects. So it's definitely this um, dichotomy, I could mm. say, of the dark web that renders it very complex, but also very important to maintain. Yeah, I think the another element that makes it even more interesting for us to be discussing is the origins of Tor and kind of the history that is packed with government influence. So we chat a little bit about that. Yeah, so the interesting part in this is that even though it's used uh, against governments in a certain point, so to um, circumvent censorship, for example, or to uh, whistleblow and, and pass on government information, it was initially designed, or at least in part, by the government. Yeah, absolutely. So it was um, created to enable um, the military in the US to communicate with um, soldiers and intelligence abroad. So, of course, this technology needed users to actually enable anonymization. So you need to need the noise to yeah, blend in. Yeah, you need the noise, you mm. need activity. So this is quite interesting because, you know, on one hand, the government is pushing for people to use Tor. Mm. And on the other hand, is really trying to um, shed a sort of dodgy light on the whole system and how it works. So this is... Very interesting. And I think the funding also by governments on Tor continues because it's still used by governments to communicate. And effectively, as far as I'm concerned, it's probably still the safest way to exchange information cross-border wise. Yeah. And obviously, governments also want this anonymity sometimes. And oh, yeah. because of the anonymity, you can't tell if it's the government or it isn't. Exactly. So it's completely like a double-edged sword where there's a you get some benefits, but there's definitely some drawbacks to this. So, I mean, just talking about the whole anonymity aspect, how would someone, if they perhaps wanted to use the dark web for good or for bad, what would be the steps to take towards accessing the dark web and going about this? 
Yeah, so I think the first step would be to download on your computer a privacy enhancing technology. So Tor, as I said, is the most uh, commonly used one. Um, and then as such, you need to find the link um, to access specific information or a site or a service and so on. Um, so this is not indexed and there are different ways to find the specific links. Um, so for example, if you are looking for um, illegal films, you would probably either go on Reddit or go on a site such as uh, one called Hidden Wiki, where you can find sort of index information, right? So actually getting there and, and having the technical means is quite easy because it's just downloading yeah. uh, either Tor or some more or less standard browsers even have the function to access uh, the Tor network. So this is the easy stuff. The hard stuff is actually finding the content because by definition it isn't indexed by Google and you can't just Google stuff, uh, but you need to find kind of like the 90s, you need to find the yeah. link somewhere uh, in order to be able to access one of these sites. Yeah, so just going on the dark web with no purpose or reason or not really knowing exactly what you're there for, what you need to find is really pointless, makes no sense. So you have right. to go there and know exactly what you need, how to get it and things like that. Yeah, and also technically quite difficult actually to find information if you don't have a purpose, yeah. Right, right, because you need essentially a list a starting of the, point yeah a yeah. starting point a list where you, you need to go and you need to find this uh, and it isn't as easily provided to you as it is on the on the surface web right so Catherine um, you access the dark web for research purposes at a point in and time and I want to underline research purposes yes <laughs> research purposes um, so how was that experience for you what did you see and um, how was it in the end doing the research Right. Um, so I think in general, it looks uh, quite similar, especially if you're looking. So I was looking at online black markets. So this looks uh, like eBay, but you do find um, the freakier <laughs> objects or whatever being sold. But you also find very simple items such as books and clothes, but also illicit products such as weapons, passports, credit cards, drugs and any other stolen good. Um, so it's really a lot of, in, of information and as I said there are so many sites that really depends where you land um, but I think uh, this sort of idea that it's full of you know incredibly unscrupulous criminals trying to do the craziest activities is also uh, quite false because a lot of the activities are quite simple it's just like a selling platform. Okay, so um, leading from that, what are the, the legalities of going on the dark web? So is the um, downloading of Tor, using it to access the dark web, is that already problematic in itself? Or do you need to be doing something illegal when you get on there for you to be crossing over a threshold? Yeah, I mean, it, you, you said it right there. You need to do something illegal, actually. And just downloading a browser and just accessing this network, which can be used for good and has legitimate purposes, uh, isn't as, as such illegal. Right. Uh, so, so it's it really also like free open source browser that is as such funded by a lot of governments. Yeah. Right. So this is completely legitimate. Yeah. So then, of course, the question is what you're doing or what you're looking for on uh, the dark web, which determines whether uh, the activity could be 
illegal. So, for example, if you are looking for a specific link to child pornography, depending on the country, it obviously is an offense. So this is an, a clear example. But if you are just browsing on a black online market platform, I doubt this would trigger illegality as such. Mm, or if you go on to be part of a specific forum of journalists or something like that, then obviously you're not partaking in illegal activity. Right. So here it could also be interesting to look into, you know, the extent of hate speech yeah. or, yeah. I mean, I find it quite interesting that many tour nodes are run by just random people. So you can re really easily do this at home and just be part of this network and enable other people to access the tour network. On the other hand, this puts you at a certain risk because it, then it's your IP address that shows up uh, on these sites uh, and it looks as if you access this material. Uh, and, and this also caused some, some legal problems for these people. So there's uh, reports of homes being raided and people being arrested just for um, providing this infrastructure and other people doing the actual illegal stuff with this. Right. And it's quite interesting because um, most, well, not all of them, but a lot of people volunteering to have a node through their computer are actually activists or, or at least are doing it with an idea of sort of uh, enhancing human rights, especially freedom of speech, uh, but also, as we said, privacy itself. Mm. Um, so this is quite interesting when you see that um, their computers are being raided, some of them are being arrested, and then depending on the country, they also try to charge them. Mm -hmm. So there was this case in Austria where someone was charged with the accessing of child pornography because someone with... Um, his IP address uh, via his computer was um, accessing child pornography. Uh, and this was heavily criticized even from a, from a legal point of view because mm -hmm. A, uh, it's a legitimate activity that shouldn't be illegal mm -hmm. and uh, there is uh, under the e-commerce directive uh, the privilege of, of, of having an, or being an access provider. And right. This is, then you have, this you have the slight hurdle that as such the e-commerce directive probably wouldn't apply um, to someone just hosting uh, with a note. But still, the principle that, you know, if um, you're merely hosting, you don't have control, um, you're not fully aware yeah. of the illegal activity happening or the illegal information being exchanged, um, the question is very similar in the end, you know, of whether YouTube sh should act yeah. uh, upon knowing that there is illegal copyrighted content. Yeah, or even your internet service provider also providing the infrastructure for you to access the dark web. Yeah, exactly. They also are, in, in, in a certain case, complicit in this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think this conversation leads us to a larger conversation of how law enforcement is able to investigate what goes on on the dark web and conduct these arrests. So, like, what type of techniques do they apply when there's such a high level of anonymity and it's quite difficult to pinpoint who is who and who's doing what? Right. So as you said, there is a technical issue, which is very hard to actually identify any of the criminals or even difficult to find victims for that sake. But there is also um, the issue that, as was mentioned, um, the sort of information is bouncing randomly around nodes in different countries. And obviously, this has an impact on the sort of cross-border nature of this type of cyber cybercrime, which is even worse than the surface web, which as such is already a challenge for law enforcement. Um, so yeah, so traditional uh, investigative techniques don't really work. Um, they still 
try to exploit vulnerabilities by criminals as could be a fingerprint on some, I don't know, packaging of drugs or the most basic mistakes also by the victims and so on. But then there are also more sort of advanced investigative techniques where law enforcement is trying to play the game. So sometimes it's just ordering drugs to your home address and then police just looking up your address and and showing up there, which is... Which is very dumb. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I saw on Reddit that a lot of people have been caught up in this type of situation where they order drugs um, on the dark web and then they... I don't know why they would do this, but they put their address in there and they end up being caught up in some serious legal issues. And at the end of the day, they probably have to turn state informants and help the police find the bigger fish on the market or something like that. But obviously, that's a terrible mistake to make. Yeah, absolutely. Or just entering your email address, entering other information that could identify you. Yeah, so there's ways to compromise your own anonymity whilst you're on the dark web and make stupid decisions that will get law enforcement to find who you are and where you live. But there's also law enforcement taking steps within themselves to trap or to catch criminals on the dark web by basically setting up kind of fake or fake pages or something like this. There's there's a case um, when the FBI set up a page called Playpen, which was essentially a child pornography page, and they allowed people to come on there and access thousands and thousands of images of children and things like that. And in that way, they were able to catch the people who were downloading these images or resending them to other parties and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. That's one example. But uh, what they also try to do is to take control of relay nodes, especially exit nodes. And obviously, the more nodes you have, and also the bigger nodes you have, because some of the nodes um, have a lot of computing power. So obviously, there is more information going through it. And they are sort of trying to put together a puzzle. So they can't really see the whole picture, but um, with different nodes and exploiting uh, weaknesses and mistakes by uh, criminals, they try to put together the information. But the issue then, of course, is that um, the same way information is going through different countries, if you start to collect evidence, there is a problem with jurisdiction and international law and, you know, respecting the sovereignty of states. Yeah, so uh, more or less by definition, by bouncing around different servers and different nodes, it most likely will cross different borders and be in different countries. So it's really hard to pinpoint, A, where is this coming from and where is this going, and which country can actually investigate this and and, and, and what is actually going on. Yeah, because to put it very simply, you have different um, rules that determine which country is supposed to enforce the law, right? Um, So then... In a case as complicated as the dark web, all these different principles based on the territory, based on the nationality of the victim, mm. on the nationality of the criminal, so many states have jurisdiction at the same time. So it's really up to uh, trying to coordinate um, and often a sort of coordination after the investigation technique is used because you need to act fast to effectively try to track down a criminal on the dark web. Yeah, and the issue with that is that the traditional ways of cooperating law enforcement agencies is very slow. Yeah, right. And doesn't work as quickly as you would need it to be. Yeah, and it's really interesting to see that um, the formal mechanisms are useless in this case because 
I think I read somewhere that in the UK, the process of actually asking for collaboration could take up to 13 months. So when you're trying to track down an activity that is bouncing around countries, this is clearly not so useful. Also, if this is all happening while you are in control of a server and you kind of let it happen as law enforcement, you also get this um, moral dilemma, essentially. Right, how long ethical are you questions to, uh, as well. Yeah. Let it run and, and how much is your interest in catching other people using it? Yeah. Yeah, guys, very interesting topics and lots and lots of stuff to discuss in this series as we go along. So we want to say thanks to Catherine for joining us. And it was thank a pleasure. <laughs> and thank you to all of you for listening. We hope that you will continue to listen to this um, dark web series as we really go into depth and look at different aspects and communicate more interesting topics and ideas. And we hope that you will learn a lot about the dark web by the end of this series. So thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.